Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from Boston. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me is John Collins, professor of philosophy at the University of East Anglia, and he's here to discuss language universals. John Collins, welcome. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. Okay, language universals. So, as I understand it, that's the general idea that there are certain features that are common to every human language. So human languages can't just be different in any old random way, but rather there are certain principles that apply to every single human language spoken on Earth, no matter what language it is. Is that right? Yes and no. It's a tricky issue, which has been the source, it seems to me, of um, some confusion. One way of understanding the notion of universal is the notion that for any language one would look at, one would find a particular kind of feature. So one may think, for instance, that tense is a universal, so look across all the world's languages, one would find tense being marked. So that's to say there would be some distinction in the language between descriptions of events that are happening now, between descriptions of events that happened in the past or will happen in the future. Or one may think every language includes nouns or verbs, etc. That seems like a big one, yeah. Like, yeah. There's no language with no verbs or no well, nouns, is there? Or? Well, for any universal anyone has um, proposed along these lines, and they can be far more complicated than the ones I just presented, one can, it seems, find a, a language out there that, well... <clears throat> One has to be careful, actually. It's not the straightforwardly obvious that a language is going to have some feature which you think it is there or not there. So in a sense, one has to do some kind of analysis, some theoretical work. But still, it's not um, immediately uh, obvious that there are any such universals. There's some recent work which um, goes through loads and loads and loads and cases of these, kind of putative cases of uh, universals, and for each such case, counterexamples are offered. So intuitively, one would think, well, if that's the case, then there are no linguistic universals. And also, one has to bear in mind that um, languages die, and uh, new languages develop. So for any would-be universal, it looks as if it's an empirical bet whether it's going to be universal because you could discover a language tomorrow, as it were, and this feature isn't there. Or there could be some language in the past which, for various reasons, there's no way of recovering and this feature wouldn't be... Maybe this language, dead language, as it were, didn't have that feature. So that's one sense of universal. In other words, some feature that one would find across all the world's languages. There's another sense 
of universal, however. And it's the sense that I suppose is most associated with uh, the idea of Noam Chomsky of universal grammar. That idea is best approached, I think, by not asking the descriptive question of what features would one find in all the world's languages, but asking rather a question about acquisition. So here's a simple observation. Every child, let's use the term normal child, so any child without specific kind of deficits, can acquire any language. It seems with equal ease. So we naturally, as, say, second language learners, would describe some languages as more difficult than other languages. Children, however, acquire the ambient language with, seems, equal ease. So we could take a Vietnamese child, move it to Rio de Janeiro, and the child is going to pick up Brazilian Portuguese as easy as it would Vietnamese or French if they move to Paris. So the question to then ask is, what is it that each child has, as it seems a species property, that allows them to perform this feat? Now, one could think, well, there isn't anything. Acquiring a language is um, a bit like acquiring a hairstyle or a certain way of dressing. There's no as a particular reason to think there's something specifically linguistic that the child brings to this learning situation. That's an empirical claim, that there is indeed something linguistic. And the only way to really go about investigating that is to say, well, is language, as is best theorised, does it look just like another sort of species of kind of cognition. So is it that the child can learn a language just because they're smart in some way? So acquisition of language is going to be a function of some kind of general intelligence or other modes of cognition which the child has available to it. The uh, animating claim of generative linguistics is that, no, there's something specific in natural language the kind of language a child could acquire, and then universal grammar as a topic of inquiry is precisely the inquiry into what is this special capacity. That's a species property. So there are two things you might mean by universals. One thing is, look, there's this feature we happen to have noticed that all languages across the world have, and that's just sort of an observation about what happens to be the case vis-a-vis this language and that language and that language, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so just making the generalization but not having any ideas about what brought it about versus Chomsky's big idea was, well, look, maybe we get these patterns across all human languages because the human mind or the human brain, not sure which, one of them (laughs) has a certain feature that makes all languages share this feature. Maybe. I I was trying to go for something slightly stronger, which would be this. There might well be universals in the first sense, these descriptive universals. However, let's suppose that there aren't. The second sense of universal would still remain. Okay, right, because it would still be the case that any kid can pick up a language 
no matter which language it is, everybody has the ability to learn a language, and at least that's universal. Yeah, that's right. One can think about particular phenomena of our cases here, but just in the abstract, you could think of universal grammar in the second sense as being, if you like, a toolkit, a set of resources which the child brings to bear in the learning situation. From that, they develop something with a particular unique kind of structure, what we would call a natural language. So what's being universal here is the, if you like, the kind of equipment the uh, child brings to bear. But how that then translates into the observable features of language, that could vary greatly. So maybe I could give a particular example that's been um, highly controversial of late. One feature that looks to be universal in the first sense is this property called recursion. Now, recursion, it's a term for mathematics, but I don't want to get into the mathematics, but just intuitively, if one were to think about some simple cases in English, you can uh, embed, as the saying goes, one phrase into another phrase. So I can say, my mother's cat. I can say, my friend's mother's cat. I can say, my cousin's friend's mother's cat, etc., etc., etc. So I'm embedding what's called a kind of genitive or a possessive phrase into another possessive phrase. That kind of embedding obviously not only occurs there, but also with verbs. So I can say, yeah, I believe, I you believe, I believe, I you believe, etc. So embedding, in this sense, looks to be a feature one finds, obviously, not only in English, but across the world's languages. However, it might be, and it's been claimed, that some languages don't have recursion. Now, that's a controversial claim. As I suggested earlier, it's because it might seem that a language doesn't have a particular feature, it doesn't mean it doesn't. Right? One would have to properly analyse the relevant constructions in the language to find out. However, let's suppose that one were to come across a language which didn't feature recursion. All by itself, that wouldn't tell you that recursion wasn't part of universal grammar. It would just tell you that okay, in this particular case, it's a component that isn't exploited. If one were to find a speaker of a language that lacked recursion, nobody doubts that get a child of that speaker and move it over to London, then the child would acquire English that does feature recursion. So this recursion feature is this feature by which, just with a finite number of words... And rules for putting words together, you can, in principle, come up with an infinite number of sentences. So even if English just contained the words, Matt thinks that John is and happy in it. Uh, <laughs> even, you're right, so imagine that this fake English just had those words in it. Even that tiny little English with a small number of words in it and the standard rules would be able to generate an infinite number of sentences, which is to say that an infinite number of sentences would be sentences of this fake English, uh, because you can just keep saying Matt thinks that over and over again if you want. You can say Matt thinks that John is happy, and you can say that Matt thinks that John thinks that John is happy, and you can say that Matt thinks that John thinks that John thinks that Matt thinks that John is happy till kingdom come. Now, of course, that's not very interesting, but the only point here is that you get, like, as it were, like a strong payoff 
for just a limited number of resources, just a small number of rules and words that you could write down on paper, you get maybe not the most interesting set of sentences in the world, but you get way more than you put in, as it were. That's exactly so. Interesting as well in those kinds of cases is that one should note that the thoughts expressed are distinct. Whereas recursion all by itself doesn't entail that. So, for instance, if one were to think of a very, very simple case of something like negation, so I can say, you know, um, the cat is on the mat. I can also say it's not the case that the cat is on the mat. But I can also say it's not the case that it's not the case that the cat is on the mat. And what one finds if you have an even number of negations at the front, you're saying the same thing as if there were no negations. And if you've got an odd number of negations, you're saying the same thing as if there's one negation. So there you've got the recursive mechanism without a kind of semantic payoff. But then in the kinds of cases you mentioned, yeah, each of those thoughts is distinct. Right, right. So what it means to say that recursion is a universal feature of language, that's to say that, as it happens, there's no human language that contains a small number of words and small number of rules for putting the words together with the result that there's also just a small number of sentences you can make in the language. Yeah. Every human language seems to have the feature that there's a relatively small number of words, relatively small number of rules, but then infinitely many sentences you can make with it. That's right. I mean, it might well be, for instance, that some languages, as I said, lack recursion, but all by itself, even if that's the case, that's not, as we're overly significant, precisely because we know that any child could acquire a language that does have recursion. So the equipment the child starts off with is one that allows them to deal with recursion. And dealing with recursion is a peculiar human cognitive feat, as far as anybody can tell. Okay, so let's say that I'm on board with the idea that recursion is a universal feature of language, which is to say that any child could learn a language that has this feature. You can generate an infinite number of sentences from a finite number of words and rules for putting sentences together. You know, you might think that's not a super deep and interesting feature. Is there anything a little more substantial, a little more surprising that, you, wow, you wouldn't expect languages to be this specific, but in fact... There does seem to be this constraint on uh, the kinds of things the human mind can acquire. There are lots of phenomena one could discuss, but let's take a simple case that is often presented. Think about asking questions. Again, we'll just think about English, and we can things pattern slightly differently in different languages, but it looks to be broadly a kind of universal feature, in the, actually in the first sense. So... There's a kind of question in English we would ask, which is uh, called a uh, polar interrogative. And this is the kind of question which could be answered yes or no. So, is Matt sat on a chair? Yes. And we also have things like, you know, can Matt sit on a chair? Should Matt sit on a chair? Etc. Now, these correspond to the um, declaratives, like Matt is sat on a chair, Matt can sit on a chair. So you have this relationship between the interrogative and declarative. And you could think of this in terms of what the child needs to understand is how to, as we go from the declarative to the interrogative. And intuitively, to just keep with examples I've just used, you could say, well, what the child does 
is to find a word like is or can or should and just move it to the front of a sentence. That's what the child knows. That's, as it were, you know, part of a knowledge of language. So you move the word is to the front of the sentence. You take the sentence, Matt is on the chair, move the word is to the front, and then you get the question magically, is Matt on the chair? That's right, that's right. Now, as stated, that seems to be correct, and it would be not implausible to think maybe that's some as a hypothesis a child starts with in learning their language. Turns out that this, this can't be correct. If we were to just bracket for a moment of what's special about words like is and can and should and may and will, I mean, that itself is a complicated question, and we shouldn't just assume, as it were, that the child already can, as it were, identify just from the stimuli or the observed language what words to move. But let's assume that a child is able to do that in some way. Then you think, well, what about the case where you have two instances of is or can or will or should in a sentence? What should the child then do? So I would say Matt who is tall, is American. So what should the child do in that case? Well, straightforwardly, we know as speakers of English that in that case, the child should move the, for the moment, just think of it as a kind of metaphor, move the uh, second is. So you would end up with, is Matt, who is sat on a chair, American? The child shouldn't move the first is. So one could then, as we change the uh, rule which I initially offered of saying move the is to saying move the is, but if there are two is is, move the second is. Well, turns out then we can think of other cases where it's not the second is that should move, it's some other is. So I mean, things get complicated, but the general moral here is that what the child should do and what in fact children do do invariably and there's experimental data on this is to move the is which is if you like least embedded to move the is which is in uh, hierarchical terms the highest or to put it in um, I suppose more theoretically laden terms they move the is that carries main tense for the sentence. Now that then looks as if in order to do that the child must be depicting the sentence in some sense as a hierarchical structure, not as just a string of words that have the various properties they have. Strikingly, two features to mention here. The relevant kinds of cases where you would have say two is's or two may's or even more than that don't really occur that often in normal speech or writing. Um, it's just not the kind of thing that children have, as we rubbed in their faces. <laughs> However, under you know experimental conditions, children don't make mistakes. So this seems like a really important point then, yeah. Because you might think, ah, oh, well, maybe the children is mindlessly copying what they hear. But the thing is, if they don't hear these sort of, you know, not super common sentences like Matt, who is sitting down in a chair, is American, how do they know not to say, is Matt, who sitting in a chair, is an American, right? How do they know not to say that? That's right. That's right. 
well, clearly they have to have some sort of thought in their mind, like one of the two is's is the main is in the sentence. And when I said who is sitting in a chair, that was like an aside or something. It wasn't the, yeah, the, main, the main thing you're saying is the second thing. The first thing was sort of parenthetical. So the kid has to have some idea of like this is a parenthetical aside. And in order to do that, they have to be attributing more to the sentence than just the idea that this is one word after the other. Mm, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And kind of interestingly, you find the same kind of phenomena of, let's call it movement, showing up in so-called WH questions. So I could say, um, who does Matt love? And what you find there is that if I were to say Matt loves somebody or other, that's fine. But when I say, who does Matt love? The morphology in love has changed. So it's again, it's as if the tense has moved up and is attached to do. So you go, who does Matt love? So it's the same kind of structural sort of pattern, but occurring in another kind of construction. And again, this is the kind of thing children don't make mistakes on. So to say that the morphology in love changed is to say that the ES ending that we had on love in the question gets moved to the word do, who does Matt love. It doesn't right. stay with the word love, that's and right. that's counterintuitive. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So we're already into some kind of surprising features of language, but linguists have uncovered some even more surprising features that not only seem to be shared by all human languages, but seem to be indicative of the kind of thing that a person can learn. One example of this is what linguists call island constraints, and it's actually a really interesting phenomenon, even though not that many philosophers know about it. So what are island constraints? Okay, island constraints really go back to the work of a linguist, John Ross, who was working with Chomsky, but um, maybe the basic idea of such constraints go back to some of um, Chomsky's earlier work in the the, uh, early 1960s. So here's a simple kind of example. Let's say you're interested in questioning who Bill loves. So you could say, um, Bill loves Mary. Obviously, that's fine. Then you could say, who does Bill love? And Mary could be the answer to that. And you can also use what's so-called echo question. So you could say, uh, Bill loves who? Which is, again, fine. So all of that's fine. Now, think about a case where... um, Bill loves two people. So you could say, Bill loves Mary and Jane. And again, you can say, Bill loves Mary and who? Or you could say, Bill loves who and Jane? And all of these are fine. You could also say, who does Bill love? And answer with Mary and Jane. Now, what you can't do is to question one of the conjuncts. So you couldn't say, who does Bill love Mary and? I mean, that's just awful. <laughs> or, um, who does Bill love and Mary? Well, again, bad. So what's going on there? Well, if you would think of, hence the curious term island, you could think of uh, the island as an element or a part of a structure of a sentence from which things cannot move. So again, if you think of a WH term, the who is moving out of a particular constituent, a particular part of a sentence, then an island would be something from which the WH element can't move. So here you would think of a coordinated structure like X and Y, the um, WH 
item can't move out of that kind of structure. And what linguists have done is identify a range of so-called islands. And these pattern slightly differently in different languages, but again, one finds these kinds of constraints throughout the world's languages. Now, what's really interesting about islands is not only that they're very peculiar, I mean, the natural thought is, why on earth can't you do that? Uh, it, it's that they seem to lack any semantic rationale because it's perfectly fine to say, if we were to express the island thought, as it were, in some kind of logical sketch, it's perfectly fine to say something like, which person X is such that Bill loves Mary and X. So it's a perfectly good thought. It's just as if a language is saying, you're not going to have that thought (laughs) by the means you would expect to have that thought. If you want to have that thought, you're going to have to reformulate in some really awkward way. So very interesting is because you seem to have a syntactic constraint, if you like, being out of sync with what you would a priori expect to be able to say in the language. And there's nothing semantically anomalous in the island thought, as it were. Right. So, yeah, interesting. And it's like, in that case, you'd have to say something like, who does Bill love besides Mary, maybe? Or something it, it like something that, right? like that. Yeah. yeah possible. So you would think that we'll go with this idea that the way we make questions is by starting with a statement and then moving a word from the statement to the front of the sentence. So with these who questions, we start with kind of something that looks a little bit like the echo question. Bill loves Mary and who? And then step two would be we move the who to the front and then we get who does Bill love Mary and? Ah, wait a minute. That now doesn't even sound like an English sentence anymore. That sounds like gobbledygook. That's right. Even though, from a certain point of view, you could see how that kind of makes sense, even though you can't say it, (laughs) which is weird. So you have to say it in this roundabout way. And then maybe to go back to the point we made earlier, this is some really sophisticated stuff, right? It took linguists years of hard work to even figure any of this out. So you can't expect a two-year-old child or whatever to, like, have a linguistic theory that they can, you know, oh, yes, island constraints. I can't, you know, I've, that's, when I have an and phrase, I can't move the WH word outside of it, right? No little kid is going to be able to figure that out. And yet, every little kid obeys this rule. That's correct. Yeah. And there's been further, this is some evidence that was originally raised in the 50s and 60s, and since then there's been even more evidence brought to bear on these topics by all kinds of different people. That's right. And there's been lots of cross-linguistic work to see islands, how islands work in different languages. Yeah, that's also very striking. So it's not just that, well, this is a quirk of English that you can't say who does Bill love Mary and, but there's an analog of that in, indeed, every other language that we've looked at. Yeah. So there seems to be some considerable evidence in favor of some of these universals. And yet this idea that there are universals really seems to bother a lot of people. So one worry that you hear often is that this universal grammar idea is kind of Eurocentric. So it's taking English and like European languages maybe, but usually English as the paradigm case that every language in the world is modeled after and trying to sort of cram every little variation you observe in other languages into that mold to make every language just sort of like a replica of English or something. Do you think there's anything to that worry? No. Um, It's a simple answer. 
it's certainly true that most work, both current work and historically, within not just generative grammar but all syntactic theory, has a focus on English. However, it's worthwhile noting that some of the earliest work within generative grammar was in, for instance, Hebrew and Mohawk, and ever since the 1950s, a very impressive range of languages have been dealt with in this generative way. More substantively, one also finds uh, many um, ideas being built into sort of standard generative approaches that you don't find on the surface, if you like, in English. So, for instance, it's broadly assumed that nominals carry case features, which in English, just as we're at the surface, they don't, only some of the pronouns do. You also find it, again, broadly assumed that there's a so-called verb movement in uh, English. But again, observationally, you don't kind of see that, whereas in other languages you do. So, historically, I think the uh, accusation is... um, inaccurate, but more substantively one finds various features of standard theories that are, if you like, derived from the way um, non-English languages work. So I think another reason that the idea of language universals often rubs people the wrong way is that there's a history of, especially you see a lot of this in the 19th century, of people having really inaccurate ideas of what is universal to people that really just reflect their cultural biases and which lead to, you know, kinds of prejudice. And, you know, so you get all these justifications of sexist legal practices in terms of, ah, well, it's just in the nature of women to whatever it is, be homemakers and, you know, be governesses. So there seems to be a history of people taking something that's just a cultural sort of habit, as it were, and then making it into a necessary law of how humans must be, when it's really just kind of culturally specific. And I think maybe because of that bad history, a lot of people hear any attempt at trying to make any kind of claim about human nature as just another case of that bad reasoning, you know, of just being like culturally short-sighted. So do you think that there's a risk of that here too? That's right. I think in all these discussions, one has to distinguish as I did earlier, I think, between the claim that there's some innate feature that's diverse amongst the species or some feature that's had by the species. So, for instance, I mean, if one were to, say, think of issues to do with race and uh, IQ that, you know, perennially crop up, unfortunately... One thing that's pernicious about those issues is precisely because it's distinguishing between members of a species, whereas the claim of universal grammar here is not distinguishing between members of a species. On the contrary, it's saying we have a species property. So I think the kind of perfectly justified concern with appeals to anything being innate or the idea of human nature arise justifiably arise when one is making a distinction as well within the species. Whereas if one is talking at the level of a species, I don't think these concerns arise. It obviously doesn't make them true, doesn't make them false. It's just I think they don't have that political dimension. So I think a lot of this probably turns on 
whether we're really being honest and we're really like sort of following the scientific method, as it were, really paying attention to the data. We're not letting our biases kick in because you could imagine a situation in which linguists came across a new language somehow in which uh, there were no island constraints. I mean, it hasn't happened. You know, it seems like it's probably not going to. Who knows? And then to sort of default to the thought that like, oh, it's a defective language. It's not a real language. It's not. These aren't. It's a bit of a slip, of course, but, you know, <laughs> these people aren't like true people speaking proper language or, you know, and then maybe they're the analogy to the race and gender thing is a little bit potentially closer. So it seems like it all turns on really being honest with your observations and your data gathering. Uh, indeed. I mean, in a particular case, everything I've said so far would be consistent with the possibility of coming across some population that their language didn't exhibit island constraints for some reason. I mean, one would have to then kind of spell that out. I mean, it may be, for instance, they wouldn't exhibit island constraints because they don't have relevant kinds of constructions in that language. I mean, we do have cases where people suffer from various deficits and they don't have, as well, language, in a sense. And that's... So, like, fine, and in those cases, we wouldn't uh, think, well, we ought not uh, think of those people as being in any way less than human. So, as a little hobby of mine, I happen to ask linguists about this a lot because I'm interested in sort of the sociology of the field. And I've found, you know, that sort of a majority, but maybe kind of a weak majority of them, seem to agree that linguistics is a science. It's like on the model of the hard sciences. You know, that's what linguistics is. And then maybe uh, a small minority have some doubts about that. Uh, Maybe it's a soft science, or I didn't even know if it's a science at all. But in any event, some philosophers who are learning about this stuff from the first time might think, we're just talking about science here. What does this have to do with philosophy? So what's your position on that? Are these um, universal features of language we've been talking about, like, is that a philosophically important issue? Or are we just sort of um, talking about what linguists are doing? Yes, there's a a simple-minded response to that, which would be along the lines of, well, look, if you're a philosopher of X, then you should know something about X. So if one's a philosopher of language, why on earth ignore what all these linguists are doing? It would just be as well so obtuse. One would need as well a good reason to, in some sense, ignore what they're doing. And you know, a philosopher of physics, for instance, ignore what the physicists are doing. More substantively than that, though, throughout the 20th century, there's this sense that philosophy of language uh, kind of prevailed. It was, I suppose, if you like, the kind of first philosopher. It's at the basis, in some sense, of philosophy. In fact, Michael Dummett, a great philosopher, thought of um, the so-called analytical tradition as really putting linguistic questions at the foundation. The thought there being something like philosophy of language takes in everybody else's washing. So if you want to know about ontology, so our kind of metaphysics, you have to think about language and meaning. If you want to know about epistemology, think about language and meaning, etc., etc. Wedded to this thought was the idea that what we can think and the kind of categories we uh, employ are in some sense built in or encoded in language. I think one philosophically interesting 
aspect of generative linguistics is that it really brings a lot of these issues into doubt or at least makes them problematic in various ways. So just a, a simple example which has been uh, discussed somewhat. Take an expression like the average American. So we have these phrases like the average American has 2.3 children. And then we say that kind of thing without pause as well. It just seems like a normal kind of thing to say. And then we wonder, well, hang on, um, the average American. Who's this average American guy? Once we start then wondering about it, it seems as if we're involved in this very peculiar ontology. Well, this, is there this person who's the average American and what on earth would it be for that person to have 2.3 kids? It seems a kind of bizarre thought. Well, there are kind of two positions one can take on this. Uh, one may think, yeah, the language just, as it were, doesn't care whether the ontology, if you like, that appears to be suggested is bizarre or not. Another kind of view would be, no, in some sense, language or structural language ought to be constrained in such a way as to deliver the kind of ontology, the kind of objects we think there are out there anyway. So I think a lot of philosophical work can be pursued on these kinds of issues. The the extent to which language has built into it certain ontological commitments or not, and what those ontological commitments are. I mean, in that particular case to do with the average American and lots of other such cases, I think the best way of thinking of this kind of phenomena is that the language by itself, as it were, is perfectly happy with this, on the face of it, bizarre object which is the average American, even though our, as it were, thought, our independent kind of metaphysics tells us, no, of course, there can't be such an object. And even if it were such an object, what enough would it be to have 2.3 children? So philosophers in the 20th century had thought that, or had been pretty optimistic about the prospects for a new method of doing philosophy, where instead of puzzling directly over what does or doesn't exist we can look at the way we talk about things. And by carefully analyzing the language in which we talk about things, we can sort of read off the language itself, conclusions about what does or doesn't exist, and get to the bottom of that question that way, just indirectly by studying language. But perhaps because generative linguistics has drawn our attention to so much more of the complexity in language, it's been more difficult to kind of like idealize language enough to the point where it's the sort of thing you can just read philosophical conclusions straight off of. And and thus, maybe it's had the effect of, for better or for worse, some people would argue for better, making philosophy language just one field among many in philosophy rather than like the center of it all. That's right. It's of, I suppose, if one's primary concern is uh, philosophy language, there's a kind of good story and a bad story to tell. The good story to tell is that we know far more about language than we ever had, and there's great work going on, lots of interdisciplinary work going on. I mean, oftentimes at, say, conferences, it's kind of hard to tell linguists apart from philosophers, and this is all great. The bad side, if it is bad, is that, yes, I think the prevailing conception, at least within the circles I just alluded to, is that philosophy of language is no longer the first philosophy, as it were. And that kind of 
goes along with uh, the the rise, if you like, of in recent years of metaphysics. So metaphysics has kind of become autonomous in a sense, which it kind of wasn't previously. Which, again, one may think that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's at least a good thing in a sense in which um, you know if if you want to find out about what there is, then looking at language probably isn't the best way of <laughs> of doing that. John Collins, it is uh, certainly not a universal feature of interviews that they are so stimulating and interesting, so thank you very much. Thank you. (laughs) If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.